Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Tracy Lovejoy. Tracy is the co-founder and co-CEO at Catalyst Constellations, the co-author of Move Fast, Break Shit, and Burn Out, uh, also previously at Microsoft for 12 years, and the co-founder of Epic, which many of the listeners should know. So Tracy, thanks for coming on. Would you mind by telling everybody how you got involved in anthropology? Not at all. And thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's great to be with you today. How I originally got in anthropology is a super random happenstance. Uh, As a child, my mom was a flight attendant, so I traveled quite a bit as a girl. I loved teaching. I started teaching when I was quite young. I started with teaching swimming lessons. I went on, I was a Princeton Review teacher, and I loved doing research. I was always researching. It's part of what I did throughout college of, you know, helping professors do things. No joke, was in the random chair of a hairdresser weaving these parts of my life together. And the hairdresser said, you should be a cultural anthropologist. And I was like, cultural anthropologist is. I'd already graduated from college at that point, had taken one anthropology class when I was living in DC. It was, you know, a, like a trimester somewhere else. And we got to do uh, urban environment anthropology, but it hadn't clicked for me. So it's like, what is this? And just started going, looking it up, learning about it. And I realized, holy moly, I missed something really important when I was an undergrad that I should have been looking at. And so I get it. We'll talk more about what it means to be a catalyst, but in very catalyst fashion, no joke, this is back before email. I typed up letters. Uh, My alma mater undergrad was UCLA. So I sent a letter to every single professor that was listed in the anthropology department and said, can I just come and help you and learn from you? is not a joke at all. Two professors wrote back to me and I you know, was calling, following up. And I essentially went and did some private co- coursework. Um, one with this amazing woman who's a linguistic anthropologist, uh, Candy Goodwin. And so I actually went and did field work with her. She worked at an elementary school right next to UCLA. I did transcriptions of her videos. I um, went and was you know, taping for her on the playground. We sat and had these deep conversations. Another one, Robert Edgerton, quite a famous anthropologist. And once a week, he was like, just come to my office. I'll tell you books to read. And then we'll talk about them. How awesome is that? And so then I was like, I love this. And so I applied to a whole bunch of programs, ended up starting at uh, the University of Chicago in a social science program, wanting to move into a full anthropology program, a full PhD program. I didn't end up doing that. And that's the story of how I ended up moving into practice. Yeah, thanks. Um, Mine was similar. I I hadn't taken any anthropology courses and 
someone was looking at my book collection and thought I might be an anthropologist. And Isn't that neat to have random people see you? Like, I can't even remember this person's name. I know it's somewhere in LA. Don't know where it was. Don't know who it was, but like such a pivotal influence on my life. Yeah, you'd like to thank them now, I'm sure. But yeah, so uh, using that to, to pivot. So, you know, most people, when they go through programs, you know, they, they don't hear anything really about practicing. I believe your program probably wouldn't have spoke about that, having looked it up on LinkedIn. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what that life was like in, in grad school for you and then how you did make your way there. Absolutely. I actually had a friend from college, Kelly Studer. She was a recruiter uh, for an organization. And just having known me in college, she kept saying, I think you should come work for us. We do this work where we go and study people and help make sense of their lives. And this was before, obviously, because it was post-college that I found anthropology before I ended up on my path. And I was like, no, I don't know if I'll do that. And just kind of kept putting her off, putting her off. Ended up in school and went to an informational about um, eLab Sapient, which is, you know, one of the out there with um, Xerox Park is one of the early places that, that, you know, applied anthropologists were really working. And it was a zap. And that's actually where Kelly had been working all those years. And I finally understood what she had been talking about. So I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Now I, I get it and I want to learn more simultaneously in the early days at the University of Chicago. And it's looking back now, I realized it wasn't fair. It was in 2000. Anthropology was in a moment of crisis. This is when Stanford was just breaking apart. Their department medical anthropology was pulling off. And University of Chicago is notoriously horrible in terms of, you know, kind of how people feel, the culture, the way students are treated. I didn't really know that being on the inside. So I got three different jobs in the department. And you can get the sense, like I tend to, you know, throw myself headlong into whatever I'm doing. So I got three different jobs and I had this realization of, holy moly, in this department, people spend eight to 10 years of their lives and it's kind of miserable. So I had my first midlife crisis in my early twenties thinking, am I really going to dedicate my life to this? And then simultaneously, I went to a Sapient slash eLabs informational and I was like, that's really interesting. To your point, they didn't talk about applied anthropology at UFC. This, you know, there is no fifth branch of anthropology as far as they're concerned. Margaret Mead is not on the wall, even though that's where she's schooled, right? Nobody is talking about her. Uh, so I ended up interviewing with Sapient and then pretty quickly with the DATCOM first, almost all of their anthropologists got laid off. So I had felt this, my heart moving in the direction toward that, and then had my second midlife crisis about two weeks after I'd had my first. Uh, my now husband, boyfriend at the time was working at Microsoft. He happened to meet a woman in Japan who was an anthropologist for Microsoft. He mentioned this and my interest and what I was doing. And she said, well, I'll talk to her. We all know the stories that go from there. So we ended up connecting one thing led to another. And so upon graduation from my master's program, I ended up working at Microsoft as a researcher. I was one of the very early folks called an ethnographer or a corporate anthropologist moving into Microsoft. And so what did they, you know, how did they perceive that at that time? What were they expecting out of an ethnographer? Yeah, it was, there were only five of us out of a hundred thousand. And so the expectations were a little bit like a zoo animal of, you know, we don't really know what to expect from you, but it sounds really sexy. What are you doing? Uh, the easiest way to answer that question is if you look at the type of research a product development cycle needs, 
they wanted anthropologists to help with those questions that come at the very beginning of a cycle of why are people using our products? How are they using them in ways that we didn't expect? Are there things that they want technology to do in their lives that we haven't tapped into? Today, we have really different ways of talking about these, right? What are unmet needs? How do we segment our user population? How do we uncover new potential populations? At the time, it was, hey, usability does these amazing things, but we only can contribute so early in the conversation. And so there was a recognition by some that there are other people out there that have research expertise that we can tap into that can help us become part of the conversation earlier. And so that's what they really were bringing us in for. But most people didn't understand that. And so it was more, you know, there's a little bit of dog and and pony show that happened in those early days. And so what did you need to do to, you know, mature that to to help others see the value? In part, it was me maturing. Uh, When I came, I felt very separate from what today we call UX research at the time were usability engineers or usability research or human factors research. And there was also a fair amount of sense of uncertainty on their side. And so we both kind of kept our distance. Once I hadn't been trained in product development, I hadn't been, I hadn't come from psychology models of research, which is where most people were coming from, cognitive or or experimental psych were coming into the human factors. Uh, Design programs didn't do the type of research that they do today, the training. Uh, Once I had been there a while and I began to understand oh, it's just a difference of, of methods, right? At, at our heart, everyone who's trained as a researcher is trained to understand what's the problem that we're solving for and therefore what is the best method to apply to solve that problem. And so once I, see, I saw everyone that was doing research is on the same side and really there on the behalf of, of users, uh, it changed my dialectic and it, there was not even a divide I saw between me and other researchers. It was just more who has which skills, who needs, you know, who wants to get different skills that didn't get that particular skill in in grad school. And so it was much more of a, a community. After I had been practicing for about six years as a corporate anthropologist, I moved into management. Uh, and as management, that was very much it, is that because I... Because I sat at the front end of the cycle and part of our work had to tie into what people were doing further along in the cycle, I very naturally had a very holistic view of what research could mean for products. And so as a manager, that was really helpful is I could help hire appropriately. I could help um, round out skill sets and I could speak very openly to anyone about the value we bring, understanding that there's a, a... there's a set of questions that fit depending where they are in the cycle and respecting it's not appropriate for me to show up with un- unmet needs three months before we're supposed to ship a product. Right. And so once I really understood what was happening there more and, and, and saw all of research as one thing, it was a natural progression. So you move into management and, you know, that seems that experience seems like it could certainly lend itself to you know, what you're doing today. And so what did you see along the way in terms of you know, people who were burning out to tie it back to the title of the book, you know, were excelling or maybe trying to push, but not being able to, you know, get buy-in. What, what was the lessons learned there that has caused you to go out and become a, a catalyst consultant today? The most direct initial was 
back to that woman, Kelly Studer, who was trying to recruit me before I saw myself as a, as a researcher, as a primary identity, she saw in me that I always am trying to understand why and trying to really get to root causes and unpack things. I do that whomever I'm with. When I did that as a corporate anthropologist, my gaze was put on how do we help make this product better for people? How do we help build the right products? You know, what are products that don't exist yet? Once I became a manager, that same gaze fell directly on the person in front of me. And so how do I help this person feel more fulfilled? How do I help them have the career that they want? Uh, I threw, at Microsoft, you have the benefit of having all kinds of leadership training. In my day, nobody held you accountable to being a good leader, but you could train as much as you wanted. And so I had almost a free education of getting to learn the ropes of management. That was a direct path for me into executive coaching. So because of my love, I began training while I was at Microsoft because I figured coaching training could help me as a leader. I didn't know that that would be a career pivot that I would make. The other pieces of what else did I learn, I didn't know I was looking for them. And so it's, it's on retrospect that I can go back and the learnings I had living in high tech uh, were so valuable, right? I, I, hadn't, I didn't name Catalyst until years after I had left Microsoft. And it was a big aha for me to see, holy moly, right? Part of, part of what I was beginning to see in 2015 as I was doing the research I was doing, I was looking around on my bookshelves and looking because I've got books around innovation kind of sitting all around me. None of them were about the fire starters. None of them were about the innovators. They were all the processes of innovation. And so I could go backwards at Microsoft and even within that set, there were some people who were always the ones that had new ideas and were connecting dots and were thinking about the future, even though so many of them were all on the, the precipice of you know, what we were building for the future. So those are some of the seeds that were growing in those early days. The first just being, holy moly, I have a skill set that I've honed through my years in training as a researcher that make me really good at examining what's in front of me. And I'm much more fulfilled when I do that with an individual person or with a group of people than when I do it for product development. And then the next was how to what what I'm looking for in a particular population within that. And so I want to come back to that, but before jumping ahead too far, so also in this time, uh, in your time at Microsoft, you get involved and co-found Epic, right? And so just tell us a little bit about, you know, everybody, many listeners will know Epic. They don't all know the backstory. So tell us a little bit about that, how that came to be, and, you know, I guess some of the lessons learned from starting an organization. Absolutely. The number one lesson learned is don't name uh, something after a method. We've been pigeonholed into the word ethnography for, what, almost 20 full years with Epic. Uh, and I'll explain that in a moment for those of you that may not know what Epic stands for. In 2002, I think, I, I went to the AAA and was very excited. I was a newish employee at Microsoft and thought, oh, I can, you know, there were, as I said, there were only five of us across 100,000 companies. So I was looking for a tribe of folks that I could feel connected with. Um, and I checked in at AAA and the volunteer woman there very sweetly asked me my name and she looked down and she looked back up with these accusing eyes and kind of hissed out the word Microsoft. And I, I didn't know at the time, it's very different today under Ed LeBeau's leadership, as you and I both know. 
Uh, I didn't know at the time that AAA was hostile to folks coming in that had made the choice to go work in corporate environments. Uh, so I didn't find what I had optimistically hoped for there. We found a little bit more at the Society for Applied Anthropology, but even more this amazing woman, Natalie Hansen, who started a Yahoo group. Anthro Design was the place that we were beginning to connect of folks that were popping up in industry. Uh, in Anthro Design uh, groups, we would all say, hey, I'm going to be at this place. Who wants to get together? And at first it was always Natalie and then other people's did it. We're creating lunches essentially where we would meet. I remember in Santa Fe, we couldn't find a place that was big enough for the number of people that wanted to come together. That was about 2004. And so I had this idea, well, what would we all, would those of us working in industry want to get together? Are there enough of us at this point? You know, if, if 40 was too many for a restaurant, is that too few for our own conference? And so at the time I had called Genevieve Bell and was like, hey, Genevieve, do you think people would want to do this? You're, you know, kind of a leader in the industry. And she said, well, Ken Anderson, he has money. They were both at Intel at the time. He has money. He was supposed to do it for this thing. Call him. So I was like, hey, Ken, what do you think? He's like, I have money. Let's do it. He hopped on a train. We got together at a coffee shop and we outlined the very first epic, which we held at Microsoft in 2005. Uh, lessons learned from that are immense. Uh, the name, which comes from the amazing Nellie Steele, who is still a consultant in our worlds today. Uh, she was my partner in crime in my early days at Microsoft, and she sat in the office next to me. And so Ken was like, you go figure out the name, Tracy. And so we did, and we want a snazzy acronym, and EPIC was amazing because that means great things in the world. And so ethnography was at that time a place that we were we were bonded. And so ethnographic practice and in industry conference because the time it was just a conference that's what we were starting was how we got the name so that's one of the lessons learned is that it has been a thorn in the side of the community that has built because it is much more than a conference it is much more than a method uh, so that's one thing think about the long view whenever you're naming something other elements of of the learnings there are uh, always be open and ready for iteration uh, i had no idea at the time in 2005 that you know, close to 20 years later, you and I would be connecting, right? Still thinking about, about that. Uh, every step along the way, Ken and I would ans ask the question, is this still something that we think people want to do? And it was incredibly beautiful when we finally both were able to say, hey, we're stepping away and this has become a thing unto itself. And it really is still a very powerful community today. So those are my two big lessons, I'd say. Great. Thanks for the story. And so now coming back to the work that you do today, tell us a little bit of first about what you mean by what is a catalyst, you know, define that mm -hmm. for us in, in your way of viewing it and just give us, you know, a little bit about what is the problems catalysts, you know, face in the world. Absolutely. The term catalyst for us is talking to a person and then catalysts, a group of people, right, who take in lots of information and process that incredibly quickly seeing a vision of how the world can be better based on that information and are often tripping over themselves into action to move that into place, maybe before they've even named the vision for themselves. Once they're in motion, they have a very natural growth mindset or design thinking or scientific experimentation mindset, whatever framework you, know, you relate to, that's helping them take baby steps of action 
testing, learning, iterating, and are shifting to move toward this new, better world that they see. I mentioned earlier that it was a surprise to me when I first was kind of stumbling on this. I assumed, oh, there must be a ton written about this. And it was a shock as I went to the bookshelves thinking about innovation that there really wasn't a lot out there uh, that were about these disruptors and fire starters. Since then, there have been some really interesting books in the category beginning to talk about this, which is lovely. Uh, a recognition that there are those that are kind of on that front side of the bell curve. There's the diffusion of innovation that was written about, but who is at that point is very, was very rarely talked about previously. The second part of the question you asked, what are the challenges that Catalyst face is equally interesting for any of us as researchers? Because I didn't know, right, when I first began stumbling on this, that that would be such a cohesive part of who we are. Uh, and it is. The challenges that we face feel almost universal to people who identify as catalysts. Uh, number one can be how often we leave people behind by accident. Because uh, certainly, you know, in any population of people, you meet people who have, you know, kind of a puffed up ego. Most of the catalysts I work with, even though we kind of talk about uh, catalysts as superheroes, are just super normal people going about their life, don't feel like they're better than others. And they make the assumption that everybody else came to the same conclusion they did, that everybody else sees the world as it could be at its maximum state the same way they do. And so they'll start just walking toward that, taking action, thinking everybody is walking the same way. And so that's a place that we find ourselves of, whoops, I didn't mean to leave you behind. And this can be very alienating as an experience for a variety of reasons. One, in organizational contexts, we can take a lot of um, criticism for constantly leaving people behind or making other people feel bad because we're essentially saying their babies are ugly by the very nature of wanting to optimize what is. The second thing that's a challenge that's related to what I'm saying is that sense of loneliness or isolation. Whenever you're someone that's always out front, even if you didn't realize you were there, when you turn and look and you're alone and you have to try to convince people, that can feel bad, right? That can feel isolating, lonely, and sometimes that can have a dark side where people get fired uh, because they are too disruptive or they can be seen as um, negatively impacting workforces by accident. Um, and then even in those words, I can imagine the listeners feel the energetic drag that comes with that third one. And so that's a really big third challenge that I'll share is that catalysts identify having very frequent and deep cycles of burnout, uh, as you mentioned. And that's you know kind of part of the, the title of the book, Move Fast, Break, Ship, Burnout. This is the antithesis of what we want catalysts to experience, but it is a way we are when we are unchecked and haven't yet really come to understand ourselves is that we're out there moving so quickly. We can be breaking shit and breaking relationships by accident, even though it's very well-intentioned. And then because we're just running at it headlong again, we can find ourselves in troughs of burnout and sometimes even trauma when we find the organizational context has turned south or maybe even once again. So those are three big ones, leaving people behind, the isolation that comes with that, and the uh, burnout that can be part of how we are. So a lot of that, while it obviously impacts the individual, it is also very much about the group. Are you going into organizations and like sort of working with the catalyst and the partners around them, or are you just working with the catalyst? The I'll parse I'll parse it into two things. Uh, and you mentioned earlier when researchers, when anthropologists move out, they're often doing consulting work, but we're still doing research. 
I do so much research in our company. And one thing I love about the organization All Up is that it's incredibly data-driven. So every program that we run, we're looking at the impact from the very beginning all the way through the end. So I get to geek out on data all the time, which is super fun. Most of the primary research that I oversee these days is interview-based or survey-based. Uh, so that's that's more of the... Um, uh, elements that I'm writing up and keeping track of. I do also spend a lot of time with catalytic leaders and their teams. I'm not doing it from a um, structured research perspective. And so the work that I'm doing sitting there, I also coach one-on-one -on -one with a lot of executives and catalyst leaders. And so that becomes anecdotal anecdotal work for me. And it will help me sometimes pick where do I want to go deeper and do interviews. But these days I'm not doing observational work to support, you know, a primary research agenda. You know, if somebody's listening and they're sort of self-identifying maybe as this type of person, I know every situation is different, but do you have like, you know, some broad tips that maybe you provide people? It depends on on the places that they may be wanting to grow or that they may be currently experiencing some challenge. Uh, if you're for the first time hearing about being a catalyst, the number one thing I'll say is you're not alone. Back to that second challenge of loneliness, there are people all around you, if you know what you're looking for, that have these same cycles that you experience, that have the same optimism about the world. And it is a energetic game changer to begin to see those people. So that's just the first advice I'll say is seek out your, your fellow catalysts. In terms of other advice, uh, it again, as I said, it depends what you're struggling with. And so I'll break that out a little bit. A pretty common struggle is I have stayed in an organization and things have become toxic. Uh, if that's the case, my recommendation is, is, you know, put the life mask on, pause and really ask yourself the question, am I being motivated every day to show up to prove that what I'm doing is okay and prove my value? Once we have turned toward that, your confidence is beginning to get to dangerous levels and we will continue to solve for that problem rather than the vision we started with. And we end up just sinking really dangerously. And so if that's where you think you're at, pause, talk to a friend, talk to a therapist, right? Whatever the, the life mask is going to be, not everybody has the luxury for me to say, leave your job, right? And I'm not trying to pretend that, but, you know, really begin helping to fill yourself with compassion um, and kindness and take a look at the position you're in from a dispassionate observer. And if you're an anthropologist, you know how to do that, but you're probably a little too close to it. On another key challenge that I can bring advice to, if you're a catalytic leader and you're asking yourself questions of, you know, how do I move faster? How do I motivate my team? Again, the dispassionate observer as a piece of advice is going to help you, right? And this is where every time, and you got to see me do this at the AAA, every time I present to anthropologists, I love that I can say, anthropologists out there, if you're catalyst, you have the ruby slippers on. You have the ability to look at your environment and study it in a way that most catalytic leaders don't, right? So take a pause, take a beat, and look at your environment as if you are studying that as a research site. 
to give yourself the prescription of how you need to show up as a leader to support the people around you, to really assess how ready is my organization for change that I might want to bring, and what are some of the baby steps along the way that I can bring to help inch us there. So different different moments that people may be in. You know, you, I know you do some speaking. You have the book again, move fast, break shit, burn out. But you also have an upcoming empowerment summit. Would you tell us all a little bit about that? Absolutely. Twice a year in January and June, uh, we offer a free event, and it will always be free. Where we invite folks to come and hear speakers that are world class. It is an event that is designed by and for catalysts, meaning they are short talks where there's always actionable insights you can put into motion instantly. Uh, at this, this, uh, the January 2023, we are um, excited to host the former CEO of GE Ventures uh, and former head of uh, innovation at GE. And she's talking essentially about her catalytic learnings of, you know, what, what would it have been great to know? We have the uh, chief revenue officer at Plum who's talking about how does he employ uh, slowing down and really rejuvenation to help him keep up his catalytic pace. We have the CIO at Corsair uh, talking about how do you create transformation even in a down economy, which is such a real thing for us right now. And Susan Lindner, who is the CEO of um, Innovation Storytelling. Why is storytelling at the heart of being able to create change? And also back to your questions on research and us coming together, every Empowerment Summit, I launch new research that's designed just for the Catalyst community. So I'm excited that this time I'm going to be talking about how is it that Catalysts uniquely recover from burnout and how does that look different than what some of the general wisdom might be. So I'll be talking about that there. Interesting. I, I'm pretty sure a number of people would find that that compelling. I, I had done some podcasts actually with the Epic community uh, for, ahead of the previous conference. And I know there was a few sessions on burnout, um, so I imagine it's tough. Yeah, over the past few years, it's obviously it's a very relevant topic for many people. Agreed. Other than that, uh, anything else coming up that you want to mention, or where could people get in touch with you? LinkedIn is a great way to reach out and talk to me. Of course, we have our website at catalystconstellations.com, which is where you can see all the things that we do in the world. You can learn more about coaching. You can learn about our courses for catalysts, whatever might have caught your interest in this discussion. Learn about the book. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes. So, uh, Tracy, thanks for taking the time coming on and sharing your story. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.